All right, everyone, welcome back to the Six Pennies podcast. Today we have a special treat. Um, this is Albert Wynn. We haven't done an entrepreneur series in several months. We're going to bring it back tonight and we have a special guest. But before we get, that, get, get to that, let me uh, get to our sponsors. Today, um, our sponsor, our presenting sponsor always is Farmers Insurance. It's brought to you by our friends and, and, and family members at Farmers and especially Derek Shaw. Don't be caught unprepared the next time there's a flood or hurricane or if you're in a car accident. Get a home, life, and auto insurance quote today. Derek is eagerly awaiting your call for a free consultation. Please check out his Facebook page. You can also reach him out. Reach him at 214-729-6462. That's 214-729-6462. You can text him, call him, voicemail, FaceTime, whatever the case may be. Mention Six Pennies Podcast, and he's going to hook you up with an awesome discount. The second is Loan Factory. Loan Factory is um, is, is someone that I've connected with uh, over the years. I think all three members of the Six Pennies Podcast have used Loan Factory. Um, we all know, and this is, uh, you know, hits close to home for you, Adam, but buying a home is probably the biggest and most important purchase you ever make. It's complex. There's a lot of little decisions as well as big decisions along the way. It helps to get expertise and expert advice from those who have been through the ringer. That's where Loan Factory comes in, and especially Billy Wynn. He is simply the best. He has 15 years of experience in the industry. He has a team working around the clock in, in the Dallas area, but really all over Texas, to find the possible best possible rates for your financing or refinancing needs. Um, they work with 50, over 50 different lenders, and they help choose the best option for you. To give them a call or contact them, it's 469-585-4498. That's 469-585-4498. We are experiencing historic lows or interest rates right now, and so please take advantage. It doesn't hurt just to get a quick consultation. And again, same with Farmers Insurance. If you mention Six Pennies Podcast, Billy will give you a hookup. That's 469-585-4498. All right, let's get to it. Um, kind of mentioned his name uh, during the uh, during the intro there, but I want to give everyone a shout out. Um, Adam Rosenberg. How are you, Adam? Doing well. How are you doing, man? I'm good, man. Thanks so for let- having me. Yeah, let's let's give the people a little a little bit of what they what they want, what they need. Like how how do we know each other? <laughs> we know each other through the wonderful world of that toxic platform known as Twitter. Uh, we are a shining beacon example of good people coming together over common interests in conversation on um, Twitter, and we um, you know we talk about sports, uh, we talk about pop culture. Uh, we talk about life. We talk about buying houses. Um, and, um, you know, we just became friends through that and, uh, you know, and just kind of our, our bromance blossomed just, uh, through, uh, what is it? 270 characters. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 270 characters at a time. I'm holding it down here in Dallas. Adam, where are you located? I am in Boston. Um, but I'm originally from Philadelphia and, I've lived in California for my last 10 years until I moved here in March. Awesome. So this is the entrepreneur series. The whole point of this series or, you know, the premise is to connect people who are um, 
interested in you know starting businesses, starting initiatives, whether they're in a current job or looking for a job, it gives them opportunity to network. It also helps inspire them. A lot of the relationships I've cultivated through the Entrepreneur Series, I've kept up personally. Um, so a lot of these podcasts and recordings have have been great for me. So let's go ahead and just dive right into it, Adam. Like, tell the people uh, kind of your background, what you currently do, and um, you know any any aspirations for you in the future. Uh, sure. Well, I think you know because. You know, you're talking about it being entrepreneurial. Like, I think it's, I, I'll give you a kind of little of my story because it's a little roundabout. Um, but um, so I started in politics. I was a, right out of college, I was one of those, uh, I was one of those guys who knocked on doors and called people for a candidate. And um, I was doing that for a couple months in Iowa and someone found me and said, can you do this, but do it for fundraising. And basically I was a political fundraiser, which really helped me network and really helped me meet a lot of people. Um, and then uh, I sort of moved that into doing things more on like a media side. I was kind of always like, you know, since I was always talking to people, it was always like, well, let's kind of uh, turn this into an event or do something like that. And, um, you know, my path kind of took me from politics to PR to like, and nonprofits to like working for some brands. And then, um, Eventually, uh, that all led to where I am now, where I am the head of communications for Vindex, which is an esports holding company uh, started by uh, a couple guys who started a company who had a company called Major League Gaming, which um, essentially was like the ESPN for esports. And I'm the head of communications for their startup. And what Vindex does is um, they're essentially for esports. They are a service and solutions unit to do um, production, um, to do broadcast, um, to basically take anything that you want to be involved in from um, professional uh, video games, essentially. Uh, if you are a brand or if you're a league or if you make video games and you want to turn it into a league, you would go to us and we would put together a league for you. We can put together the broadcast. We do the technology that powers all the teams. Um, you know, we, we power it all on Twitch. Um, so we're kind of that, uh, whole like tool set in a box startup and I run all of our communications and, um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of exciting. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of our listeners, especially the younger listeners, uh, realize the growth and the potential of esports, of gaming. Um, I guess briefly, Adam, if you can just get into, where do you think the industry is growing and and at its peak how how big do you think it is like do you think uh there'll be a day where we're all just watching esports and instead instead of you know nfl or something on sunday yeah you know it, the growth of esports has just been incredible um i mean look we we all kind of grew up with some sort of we all grew up with some sort of video game memory whether we played video games at home or whether we remember seeing a pinball machine or whether we remember seeing a Miss Pac-Man or just seeing it. And like, you know, these are started as things that were built with lights that would kind of bring us in. And now it's become something that we can compete in. Uh, colleges have esports teams. Uh, this is, it's an industry that is bringing in more money than movies and music combined. It's like a 200, um, $200 million a year, billion dollar a year industry. It's pretty, 
crazy. Um, and what um, is, is, is happening is that, especially kind of accelerated through COVID and pandemic and everyone being at home, is that esports has become a way that people can connect across distances very easily. So I, every night, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, like I moved from California, I moved from California in the middle of this pandemic and I use call of duty. I have a call of duty date with my friends every night, uh, at around 11 o'clock. And it's a way for me to talk to them from, you know, and just kind of catch up and we catch up while we're playing. And that's just this one thing that's kind of helped, you know, make a casual entry into video games and, um, you know, the, the growth of the market is just incredible because you're starting to see more and more traditional sports uh, figures and athletes start to get more involved and have their own esports teams. Um, the NBA, when they were taking off during the uh, first couple months of the pandemic, they did a 2K tournament. Um, NASCAR did the same kind of thing. Ben Simmons um, who is a star player for my Philadelphia 76ers. Um, I don't know if when this podcast hits, if he will still be on the Sixers, but, um, (laughs) but he, um, you know, he is, he's a, he invests in a number of esports teams and he is a keynote speaker at a number of business conferences. Um, it's sort of becoming a bigger thing because to your point, like about kind of growth and how people are consuming it, People don't consume media in a live format as much anymore. They talk about it live. But the thing is, is that what happens is we live in this kind of on demand um, in front of me. I can control it type of media world. So someone will what I mean by that is things will get um, put up on Netflix or put up on Disney Plus and you don't have to watch them right at midnight and they go away at 2 a.m. You can watch them whenever you want. You can talk about them. And that's sort of. Uh, that on-demand mentality is something that's kind of happened with esports, and that consuming a media that way is what is something that's more consistent with a younger audience. And that's part of why you're seeing less people are watching live sports and more people are watching esports because it's more common to be able to um, watch at any given time and on-demand a Fortnite match and things like that than it is to necessarily watch some of the games live. Um, and so just the way media habits are trying to moving from a younger audience from an older audience is, is part of what's helping on this growth of, of esports. And, you know, I think we're, we're, we're close to this being something that's probably going to be like part of the Olympics or part of other games. I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming team oriented everywhere and it's, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. I think I've mentioned this before to a couple of my friends, but you know, we act like we're, we're, or young, but we're, we're actually pretty old, you and I, Adam. And, and growing up, um, you know, playing games had this connotation of um, anti-socialism or, um, you know, just staying indoors and not really out. To you. Like a gamer back in the 90s most likely wasn't your jock, right? And then now, fast forward to 2020, to be social now is actually to play games and to get online. And that's how you, um, you know, have camaraderie and have conversations with your friends is, is, is games. And it's, it's such a 180 from how we grew up. Yeah. I mean, I same, I totally know what you're talking about. I mean, I grew up same time as you and it was jocks and nerds. And there's always this scene that I go to, there's a scene in the movie 21 Jump Street, the remake, um, not the TV show that we grew up on, where they go to the high school and they can't tell who are the jocks, who are the nerds, who are the cool kids. Because that 
like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in that same way anymore. And it's now kind of, um, you know, video games are sort of used as a, there's something that appeals to everyone. Um, you can be into puzzles and you do a puzzle game. You can be into sports and you do a sports game, but the whole camaraderie and the whole team effort is is become a, a huge deal. I mean, people tune in, by the hundreds of thousands to watch who are going to be the free agents on League of Legends teams. And um, the amount of viewership, the amount of just brand involvement that's happening um, on esports is just incredible, given that it's not actually, you know, one of the big four. It's not baseball. It's not hockey. It's not basketball. It's not football. Um, but it's right there because all of the players that are involved in those sports, there is a electronic digital counterpart to them um, on the video game side. And so it's just inching closer every year to becoming this really bust into the mainstream thing, which, you know, for better or worse has been, um, you know, accelerated due to, I think due to the pandemic, due to more people being at home and being able to play. Yeah. So one, one question that, you know, I get all the time regarding the money surrounding esports or professional gaming is people, I guess people realize, or they've seen some of the, the dollar figures of some of these, like you said, free agents or star League of Legends or star Counter-Strike players make, um, I guess the question is, where is the money coming from? So that money, I mean, the money comes from, um, cause like they own kind of their own rights. So it's a little more wild West than if you, than in traditional where things kind of go through, like the NFL has its media rights and the NFL sells its media rights to Amazon, sells it to Fox, sells it to CBS. It's a little bit different for an esports team because the team doesn't necessarily own their media rights. The, there isn't necessarily a media deal. It's kind of the league might have something and then a player can get their own sponsors that are, uh, just based on their play, but also come through their team having an association with a brand. But you're seeing tons of different brands that are that are doing things all the time. A lot of, you know, a lot of luxury brands too. Like there's high-end car manufacturers that are sponsoring teams and might be putting together a tournament because, you know, this is a uh, an audience that if you like, you know, to them they see a real a, an audience that has a lot of buying potential, and not only a lot of buying potential, but a lot of influential potential because. If you're playing a game and you are, um, you know, talking about whatever energy drink or, or things that you had on it that are helping you play your game, like these are these are folks that are getting, you know, tens of thousands of people that are listening and watching and, and then do things based on that. So, the, but like the brands involved, it used to be, you know, it used to be just um, grooming and healthcare stuff, but you know, it's now like the fact that you're seeing, you know, Mercedes Benz is sponsoring esports tournaments and sponsoring the prize pool and giving away cars as part of it it's becoming bigger and bigger and it's uh just up there with all the other sports in terms of some of that advertising that you're seeing so let's take a step away from esports um, sure your title is director of communications and i yes you know i would assume that there's a director of communications in all industries and not just in the in the gaming industry so can you um, I guess briefly explain what a director of communications really does or how does one. So that's the first question. And second question is how does one become director of communications? So a director of communications can be described in very different ways. The way I describe it is my job 
is to tell stories about our organization and the people that are there to anyone who is not at the organization. Um, basically, in, in practice, this means I talk to media, I help develop content, and I use social media to uh, tell our story, tell our narrative, um, and get our news out. Um, the way you become a director of communications, a lot of it, um, the background generally has some sort of form of writing involved. Um, I've always loved to write. I used to, um, I used to do like some blogging. I've done some comedy and some sports writing. Uh, I've just always expressed myself that way. Um, but it, it most importantly and fundamentally, a desire to tell stories is what happens, um, as you go through being communications, uh, the communications route. There's a lot of folks, and, and I think this is really important. You'll see a lot of folks that have gone to journalism school or majored in PR. I majored in um, environmental science and political science. Um, you can get into communications. You can get into public relations in any way that you want, as as long as you, you know, at the core principle, want to tell stories, like to read, and like to write. Really. Um, and there isn't, um, one linear kind of path to doing it. I think that just kind of generally going along the line of finding ways that you're able to take what a brand is, is trying to talk about or trying to stand for and being able to help them articulate it in various mediums, be that audio, video, text, um, or what we call earned media, which is what any, with a, Traditionally, it's basically press, uh, media, a blog, uh, a newspaper. You, that's kind of the fundamental skill set that you need to, to move yourself into being a communications director. Um, and it's, um, it's a lot of fun because my job doesn't necessarily – my job doesn't change every day, but um, a lot of it is uh, – it's always interesting because being at a startup – we have something new. You find out about something new that's kind of being built or someone has an idea going on all the time. And one of my jobs is to separate what is a good idea. What's a great idea from, uh, for a now versus what's a great idea for later, uh, versus what's going on in the world. Um, yeah, I know it's a little long winded, but I think probably one of the other key important things to being involved in communications is you got to know, what's going on in the world and then how you make yourself relevant towards what people are talking about and people are looking for, because nobody's looking for you just talking about you, but people are right now, for example, people are wondering like, how are they producing NBA games um, without fans? And uh, my company happens to do a lot of uh, esports productions that don't have fans in it. So we talk a lot about, what are the TV angles and things that you would want to do when you're filming only four people and you're only filming the players versus having any fan interaction, which is a standard thing. What's a fan engagement look like? So it's finding what people are talking about within your industry, um, knowing what's going on in the world and kind of turning that into um, how you're going to invent a story. All right. Now that's a great answer, Adam. Um, I guess one last thing you mentioned, you know, you started out in the political space, um, I guess if you could give advice to our listeners out there who are thinking about pivoting in their careers, um, whether it's a complete change to what they're currently doing or uh, a small or slight change, like what um, what are some things they should look for, and what are things where um, they should they should really focus on when they decide on whether they should change or not? 
whether they should change into anything. Um, is that just open-ended kind of just yeah, changing open, pivots whether, in general? Uh, yeah. Whether you're yeah. an engineer today and you want to get into, uh, you know, construction tomorrow, like what are some of the things that you had to deal with or tangle with internally in your head uh, for you to kind of make those big career pivots? So I think the first thing that you really have to ask yourself, and it was something that I was told, is what are your personal skills that you are really good at and you take pride in? And you and I are a great example of this. I love I love people, and I love um, meeting new people, and I love building relationships, and I love conversing with people and, and learning more about them. It, um, it wasn't – I was told by one of my professors that my – Skill set in being really, uh, really in tune with talking to folks a lot wasn't really the primary skill set that works for a mechanical engineer and for an environmental engineer. Um, there's generally a little bit more of, you know, kind of focus on this. And it's not as it's people oriented and it's collaboration, but it's not in the same way that I loved conversing. So I, I started to lean into just what it is that I liked doing. Um, it's sort of finding ways to make a career out of the joy of relationship building. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to find that. And it's also just kind of important to look at, you know, where you're, what are you looking to get into and then how would it work if, if a pandemic happened, uh, would people still do it? Um, or what, where, where would it go? And, I don't think that these are things that people need to be thinking about if it's your first job out of college. You're not going to take, you're not like people are going to, people pivot all the time. Don't be ever be afraid to pivot. Um, like I just turned 40 and I pivoted three times. It's fine. And I'm happy. And in my mind, I'm successful. I'm having a good time, but it's, it's, you know, I think one of the things that you get a little bit later in your careers would be look at what would happen to this industry if the world were to change drastically because what we saw this year is that a lot of that stuff happened. So a lot of things that were built around, you know, needing to do things in person, what would happen if that went away? One of the benefits that I had was that I got into esports um, because it was something that I knew I wanted to be involved in um, since I knew it wasn't going to go away because of pandemic. And I kind of, through my career, had sort of found the three, the, the areas that I knew I wanted to focus on. Um, and what were those kind of industries that would that wouldn't go away? So I think the overall advice that I give is you lean into what you're good at, um, because at the end of the day, you're always going to love more what you're good at and naturally good at. And um, then also look at where would this be if the world changed tomorrow and it was as hard as anything to be able to do your job and would you still be able to do it? Um, so, you know, it, it comes and, and if you're, you know, younger, one of the things that I did like all in my twenties and I still actually did it in my thirties was I would write lists of things I love about jobs and things I don't like about jobs because you're always going to have stuff you don't like, but the idea is to consistently keep this list of things that you love about each job that you're at or that you would love to be doing because it keeps you honest. It keeps you accountable and kind of driving towards, well, let me find things that I want to do for this. Awesome. Awesome. Um, beautiful. So last thing is, uh, if people want to reach out to you, if they have any questions, if they want any advice, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, you can tweet me, um, at Hey Rosenberg, H-E-Y-S, uh, H-E-Y-R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. 
or you can email me. Um, my work email is always open to uh, visitors. It's a Rosenberg, R A R O S E N B E R G at Vindex, V I N D E X dot G G. Um, and I am always happy to help folks. I know it's not the easiest year. Um, it is hard to thrive. It is hard to um, really just kind of get through the end of your days. But I had a lot of folks that always were willing to um, help me, even if it's just introducing or just kind of bouncing ideas. Those are where the, the best paths come from. And um, I'm always happy to help. All right, perfect. I will definitely share, uh, you know, those two pieces uh, of information to contact you on our page. Um, if I heard that correctly, is the email at .gg? It is. Uh, good game. It's a gaming thing. Uh, so a lot of uh, esports you'll find uh, will have .gg are yeah. the uh, is is the I don't know postscript tag or whatever it's called for it. Um, but that's, that's common there. It was, uh, it was new to my, my parents thought it was a typo and, and my iPhone still thinks it's a typo anytime I write it. So. All right. So let's get into something that really connected, uh, you know, the two of us instantly and that's the NBA. Um, you said you're from Philly, so you're a big Sixers fan. I think that's a good thing this year. Um, I'm from Dallas. I think Luca is amazing. Everything's looking up for us. Uh, but let's get into the NBA. Um, Bill Simmons. There, or, sorry, not Bill Simmons. Ben Simmons. There's been a lot of rumors that uh, if Harden gets traded to Philly, uh, Ben Simmons definitely, at the very least, would be the centerpiece of the package. Um, there's probably going to be a couple other players and a couple draft picks or another couple assets um but as a sixer fan a life a lifelong sixer fan this is very interesting angle because the other two members of this podcast are from houston and they're huge rocket fans so do you want to leave do you want to lose uh ben simmons for james harden uh if you had asked me this and you did ask me this a week ago i would say no absolutely not i don't want James Harden, I don't want a player that demanded to be traded coming to a team that just got a new coach and a new GM because I, uh, and had, and has a city excited about what's to come because, um, look, man, I'm, I'm from Philly. It's a it kind of culture of things. Like we want hard, we want hard workers. We don't want attitude problems. You saw what happened with T.O. Um, and then I actually started to kind of turn on this a lot. Um, because actually I started thinking about how James Harden is such a perfect fit for Philly in his attitude. Um, and I also started thinking about the fact that I love Ben Simmons. Um, and I think that he is, uh, I'm on the record saying this. I think he's a jump shot away from being an elite player in the NBA. Um, I don't know if Ben Simmons, uh, wants, I, in fact, I do know Ben Simmons doesn't want to take that last shot at the end of the game. And that killer instinct is actually the one thing missing from the Sixers, you look at all the things that they need. It's having one guy that will constantly be able to jump up 30 shots a game um, and wants to take that, that end of the day shot. And that guy is James Harden. So, you know, my, my gut over the last week has kind of changed to I'm okay. If, if they get rid of Simmons, um, I used to be just anti the MV thing, but I, I know that this kind of gets us, it gets us where we need to be. Um, it, it really is just from a tactical standpoint, it makes complete sense. 
So it's hard for me to, you know, you're like, you're an analytics guy. It'd be one thing if it was like, I'm going with my gut. I just don't, I don't like this. But when you look at how a proper offense can be run, whether it be with, you know, with pick and rolls and you have a, or you have a guy who's in the post, you got to have, if you have a, a core threat shooter, like James Harden, um, it completely changes that dynamic. Um, and him not having any other James Harden's on the team really allows him to thrive, which while allowing everyone else to thrive in their roles. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of every single time I hear down more say it's not happening. I just put another penny in the jar. Cause I know that it's probably happening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, being a stats and analytics guy, James Harden is a dream. Um, he is the perfect, uh, offensive player in 2020 when it comes to, um, I wouldn't say gaming the system, but he just plays the the game in a way where, you know, visually, aesthetically, it may not be pretty, um, but from a statistical standpoint, it's it's almost perfection. It's, he's probably the best that's ever done it. Obviously, there's going to be other people down the line that will and eventually become better at what he does, but James Harden is um, is a trendsetter, trendsetter, and so... Um, I think this is a great move for both sides. I think we talked about this a couple of days ago, but I think it's a win-win for Houston and Philly. From a Houston perspective, it, it kind of expedites their rebuild. Um, no one likes that R word in Houston. Um, it just, you know, they've, they've always had a star every year uh, from, you know, Yao and T-Mac to James Harden. Um, Yao, oh man. And God, then, I mean, when they build the team around him. Yeah, and, and honestly, Ben Simmons, for all of his, um, you know, flaws as a player, I think he's still a elite talent that can become, you know, the the piece in a championship caliber team. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't count him out. I also would say, a counter to your argument, um, having killer instincts doesn't necessarily always mean take the last shot. Um, he has killer instinct in different ways. Um, so, I mean, you know, Ben Simmons has his own strengths. And then if you go over to the Philly perspective, I think this propels them over the, the rest of the teams in the Atlantic Conference. So you have the Nets and the Raptors and, and Celtics. Um, but I think offensively they become unguardable and, you know, I, I'm not particularly high on Doc as a in-game coach manager, but um, you know this definitely is a move in a, in the right direction. I guess my, I'll I'll ask you, Berg. Like, do you think James Harden and Bead and and the rest of the team there would make them a top five team in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, I I, I do. I think. Yeah, I think actually to your point, one of the things about Doc Rivers that actually makes Doc Rivers is a great fit for Philly. He's a great voice for Philly, especially right now. Um, Just, you know, I think that that transcends what's going on and what happened in the country over the election, what's going on in general. I think he is a he's a good voice in Philly. Um, There's a quote that he actually said the other day. I mean, this is a guy who he described um, described Danny Green is a thousand years old, you know, um, which I thought was great because it was showing, it was showing a, you know, a good, he was, I was saying in just 
team relationship that he has with his players. Doc Rivers doesn't have to game plan out what's going to happen when you have a guy like Harden and you have uh, MB on the court because also those are two alphas. So those are two guys that are just going to be like, let me do what I'm really good at and everybody kind of get out of my way. And I think that that's what that team needs is um, killer instincts. Like you said, isn't necessarily taking that last shot, but it's the like, let me do my thing. Um, whether it's, I, I know I need to press here or I know I need to do that. It's, it's a trust um, doc, not being that overbearing kind of coach, I think is, is good for that. It's good for those players, I think. Um and, um, you know, they get him and I think that that just changes everything because I mentioned this before, but everybody this season has to be looking at the fact that the Lakers who are the defending champions. And as we were talking are getting their championship rings, um, they're better than they were last year, at least on paper. And, um, I think that the, you have to kind of in the East, obviously versus West is a different strategy but you have to figure out how are you beating that team? Um, the Sixers, it's really, does a roster like this beat, you know, the Nets, maybe the Celtics. And we can talk about that a little more than you want, but surely the Nets and the Bucks. And I think, it, uh, and, uh, and probably the Heat. And it does. Um, I mean, it's got size. It, that's roster ends up giving you size. Uh, you have both Dwight Howard and you have Joel Embiid. And it gives you that shooting. Um, if some of the younger guys mature as they should be, uh, one name being Shake Milton, um, you end up having a lot more credible threats that um, I think vault them into being a top three NBA team. Yeah, I mean, I've always said this, but from a skill, size, agility standpoint, I think Joel Embiid is the closest you can get to become to being unguardable from the center position. So um, for me, and it's always been in terms of Joel is. Um, is he fit? Is he in it? Obviously, we think he cares because he cried after the Raptors game. But does he really, you know, it's still a question. Like, does he really care? If he cares, why isn't he, go, you know, coming into the season um, fully healthy or fully fit? Like, those those are just questions that um, that come up when we question his desire to win. But I think from a skill level, I don't think there's anyone that touches him from the five um, and then Harden, you can say this basically the same thing from his position. He's um, essentially unguardable. So if okay, let's I guess let's talk about current day. What is the starting five of the Sixers? And if this move were to happen, what would be the new starting five? You're a lot more closely involved with the Sixers than I. <laughs> So I, I wouldn't be able to to list the five players. No, no, no. It's totally, well, it, it's cool. I mean, I mean, actually, I got a quick question though for you because you're talking about really great centers and having Houston ties. I mean, today I was listening, uh, I was listening to Houston and they brought up um, there's a there's a prop bet that's going around of the uh, will a player have a quadruple double? And I think that they there's only like three or four that have done it, and one of them being Hakeem Olajuwon, who's done it twice. Um, who you know, you know arguably like I guess a lot being a Houston guy would you you know where do you Kim Olajuwon best center of all time or or what so if you if you ask any Houston guy they're gonna rank Hakeem above um above Shaq because uh, they met in the finals and Hakeem swept them um it's hard to compare him with the Wilt Chamberlains and the Bill Russells but if you're talking about modern era um yeah People in, here in Texas, they're gonna, they're really gonna argue for Hakeem. 
it's amazing, you know, like if you just get bored and go to basketball reference and you look at Hakeem Olajuwon's just stats for those years, it's it's kind of absurd because the number of steals, the number of blocks in addition to points and rebounds, um, it's it's very impressive. There's no one who has the footwork like he did. We have guards, you know, from Kobe, rest in peace, uh, LeBron, guys like that go to Hakeem in the summer to learn post moves. I mean, that that is, you know, they're not going to Shaq to learn post moves. They, under, they understand that Shaq is dominant and huge and a freak, but um, it's not the same type of, um, you know, the same type of skill level. And, I mean, I'm big on Shaq, but I think what Hakeem can do for you, um, especially during, you know, 90 to 95, I think um, – I think you have to say he's the best in the modern era. Yeah. I mean, like, I think you were naming, you know, centers and it's, it's interesting given his build, he had such good feet. Um, and the, I will also say one of the best things, one of the best things that happened, one of the best things, if not the best thing could have happened in his career was Michael Jordan taking that time off. Um, Cause I think that that also helped Hakeem kind of like really vault a lot of things forward in his overall game that, then later on um, really, really helped them winning, winning championships. So, but to, to your original, you know, the original question, who's the, the starting five of the Sixers with Harden? Like right now their starting five is Simmons, Simmons, Curry, Danny Green, Toby Harris, uh, and Joel. Uh, I don't think Seth Curry really has any business starting. Um, I, I don't actually think that's a really good use of his skill set. He, the, the guy is a, is his energy plug. He's a very good shooter. Um, he's really the perfect sixth man. Um, I, um, I, I think that it's, it's sort of a, a pretty easy one here. Like, like if it was me, I actually wouldn't be starting Seth. I'd be starting shake, uh, and giving it his job to lose given how he played the preseason. Harden is on board. It's, I think it's Harden. Um, I think that that also though comes down to who the Sixers are giving up to get Harden. And I, I can't remember if I mentioned this. I was on another podcast earlier and we were talking about it, but if, um, my my gut feeling right now is that the offer on the table from Maury, Maury was Simmons for Harden straight up. That's what we're offering. Um, and maybe a pick with like a pick swap kind of thing. Cause, uh, and that they're kind of letting it sit on that because I can't see that the Sixers have would have offered that mortgage to everything for him. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like a, we've offered this for this. Um, you tell me what the demand is out there. And I think that the Rockets are kind of seeing that the demand is a little bit, not what they, not what they thought it was going to be. Um, or at least within those markets, there's only a, cur- a couple different suitors. If you assume, let's assume that the Sixers have to give up Matisse and Ben Simmons. Um, probably that, that then happens. And I mean, Harden's been starting. Um, I think even you're rolling out um, Harden, probably Harden shake. Danny, Toby, and Joel is what I would do. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the combo has to be hard and shake. And then the reason why it's Ben Seth is because they need that elite, you know, elite catch and shoot three pointer next to Ben. So I mean that part of it makes sense to me. And um, you're right. I mean Seth does fit the six man role very well. But honestly, so does Shake. He brings different yeah. you know, aspects to the game, but. I think he could run a second unit and, and really dominate that way as well. So, um, 
You could. It's just that problem with the, the, the thing with shake is that I think shake shake is shake is massively improving as both a, um, an on ball threat and an off ball threat. And, um, and that's kind of, you know, those are two things that I, I kind of, I want both those skills in my, in my front. Um, one of Seth Curry's things is like Seth Curry. It's great when he's got the ball. Like, I don't know what Seth Curry's doing when he doesn't have the ball. Um, and shake. I just think that having him with the second unit ends up limiting him a lot. Like I like, the, I like him lobbing it to Dwight Howard, but shake also has a shot. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm drinking a lot of shake Cooley cause he looked great in the preseason. I think he's, I, you know, I, I'm loving that the hashtag right now is shake season. Um, but I think shake with Harden is a solid situation for Harden because you have two guys who are not afraid to take the shot. And one of them shake who is more than happy to let Harden be that primary guy. And it helps improve shakes on ball, um, his on ball stuff as well. Do you think there's any way? Okay. So I guess before I, I even get to this, but the piece of advice I have for you is whatever Daryl Morey decides defend it because he's he's almost always right um daryl morey being a dallas maverick fan i've hated that houston had him for all those years he is um he's an expert at what he does so anyways um do you think that there's any way that they could get hardened without giving up ben I don't know how it works financially. I mean, uh, all the financial stuff off the table. I mean, it has to be, I, I guess it's to me, it's, you have to, one yeah. of the things I don't, I don't know if you sent the article or would someone you, else did. I've, would Sorry. you five first round picks for James Harden? Well, in this universe, am I guaranteed a championship? Um, it's sort of, I mean, it's, I think that part of the thing is, is that, um, Maybe it was you who sent it to me about what makes Maury so great. Yeah, it was. I think it was you. Um, that one of the things that he did was he started putting himself in the shoes of the other teams. And all he does on trades is think, when I do this, when I do this deal, um, if I'm the Rockets, why would I do any deal with the Sixers for a lesser for for anyone less than either Joel or Ben? Like that's so the the, the fact that they're talking about it now. It's def- it has to be on the table because like if you're the Rockets aren't, I mean, I'm assuming they're not a dumb organization. They're not going to be like, yeah, we'll take to- Toby Harris's contract um, because we want to get rid of, you know, one of the, one of the three best players in the NBA. Um, and we'll take your, just because of a contract bump. like they're not going to do that. So, but if I had to guess what it would be, it would just like, I mean, I just don't, I actually, I just don't see a path to it without Ben or Joel. Um, and if there is, yeah, it's mortgaging everything that you have in the future, which I don't necessarily think is what the Sixers wanted to. Yeah. I mean, there's no guarantee. Um, there's no guarantee it for a title. It's kind of like the Kawhi PG deal, right? They, I think they gave it like seven total of seven first round picks and swaps to basically get the two guys. And I think, um, someone like Harden, if you're not going to get a star player in return, you have to get four to five picks. I think Drew Holiday got, what, three first-round picks? Back. Three. Three first-round picks. Yeah, so I mean, like, Harden's going to be at least five if they're not going to give up Ben. 
And again, there's no there's no guarantee for a title. Um, I know there's so much NBA stuff to get into right now. We're we're already at the 45 minute mark. We'll probably have to record another one to to, to talk about the NBA. Um, Historical. Yeah, but uh, before before we even go to the next subject, another Philly related question. Philly sports sure. really. Why didn't they pull Carson Wentz earlier? Um, because they have 125 million dollars tied up into him, and at, there is a point with all teams that it is a, both a business decision and it is a team decision. And I think that I think they wanted to give Carson every chance to succeed. Um, I think uh, last season they saw that Carson Carson threw for 4,500 yards uh, with I don't with me playing wide receiver. Yeah. Um, you know, they, so, and we've seen his ceiling. That's part of the thing is you've seen what he can do. Um, at a certain point, it's kind of like, you got to snap out of it. And, um, you know, and the map they have invested in him, it's an embarrassment, man. It's kind of like saying it, it's admitting you're wrong. It's admitting you're wrong and being on the hook for it financially. Yeah, I mean, that's a good reason. All I know is I've watched the Eagles the last two games with Jalen Hurts, and they are completely different. Totally um, different. Yeah, the, the way they play, the way the players are playing, it's just a completely different team. On both sides of the ball. Like, on both sides of the ball. They, I mean, that first half, the, it wasn't even just the, you know, for all the talk of Fletcher Cox likes Carson Wentz more and these things. I mean, look, at the end of the I mean, it's the quarter people are going to get behind quarterbacks and do things unless they're a jerk. That defense, the defense was that defense was little practice squad guys who showed up. They had two an interception and a fumble recovery in the first drive. I mean, that it's very special when that happens. And I think that one of the things that Jalen hurts knows better than anyone else is when someone else is in charge being supportive teammate, he did it. He's done it. He did it in Alabama. And then he said, you know what, I'm going to go do my thing now because this is, you know, to his team and I'm going to go do my thing. And he did a very, very good job of waiting on it with Carson Wentz. Um, but it's a totally different team and you have to go with what's the good energy and what's uh, these are the same play calls. If you notice, it's not there's no difference in the play calls. It's just a um, it's how he handles himself in the pocket. It's how he makes decisions uh, faster. And um, and it's just how he gets the energy out of his team. All right. Well, from a um, heartbroken Dallas fan to another heartbroken Philly fan, it's never easy, man. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah, never- it, it, it really isn't. I mean, I remember where and when I was for when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. I remember where, when I was, I mean, I was at the Phillies world series championship. Um, I was when my, I was, my mom was, uh, what, I guess seven months pregnant with me. Um, yeah, she was seven months pregnant with me, uh, for the Phillies 1980 championship. Uh, my dad made her go to the game 700 level. Um, you know, I, I know where I have been for many Philly heartbreak. Uh, and I was just kind of always been that way. I, you know, married a Patriots fan though. So it's, um, you know, it's a little bit, uh, sometimes it's a tense household, but, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard being a Philly fan, but I don't think anyone can ever fault when you, you want to put everything into uh, your team and, and then see them succeed. 
All right, so one last thing, one last subject. Um, I got to it on Sunday night. I think you watched it maybe Friday or Saturday night. But we got to talk about season two finale of The Mandalorian. Oh, so good. (laughs) I think all I did was texted wow to about 10, 15 different of my buddies who I know watched the show. I knew I was like a couple days behind and I was, I, I finished it and all I did was texted wow. And I think... Um, you know, having a couple of days now to kind of digest it and reflect back on it. I think it is arguably maybe my top season of a TV show. I think it's up there with one of the Breaking Bad seasons. I think it's up there with season one of True Detective. Um, one of the lost seasons, I, I, I think it's more nostalgia at this point, but I was really high on. Um, but the Mandalorian. So let's 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 get into it. Like, what what are your thoughts? How did you react to? I mean, it's been a few days now. No spoilers, but but Luke, how did you react to Luke? I I I teared up. Um, I think it's just because I was kind of waiting. That moment connected everything in such a flawless way, and not with a lot of effort, but with a ton of emotion. It reminded me so much, that scene reminded me so much of what is considered a polarizing ad to, to Rogue One when Darth Vader comes in at the end and does his thing. And um, the fact that they had Luke essentially doing the same thing, but from a good guy's side, um, I just was I just was really happy. And it just was it just felt like good storytelling. And um, I said, this makes sense. This is um this is great. This isn't just for a cheap thrill. And it was just executed so well. And I mean, this Mandalorian this season was proof that you can create a TV show in telling, tell a serialized narrative that you could have done in a movie that like people went to cinemas and and movies for, but you could do it in a, you could do it episodic. It, It just, it was so wonderfully done. And the best part about it was that it closed the chapter literally on a number of characters and stories. And I think we all left feeling satisfied and knowing where it could go wherever. And we'd be very, very happy with where it goes. Could you imagine watching this season, you know, in actual in a theater, you know, with the cinema, with the sound, with the visuals? I mean, they didn't go cheap at all, I think. I, I don't think we've talked about this, but I'm sure you've watched Game of Thrones, too. Obviously, that show they spent a lot of money on, but it it didn't... I'm high on Game of Thrones, obviously, not the last season, but it still didn't feel like the, you know, the production was Mandalorian. Like, for some reason, it just felt so clean. It felt like, you know, a $200 million budgeted movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It did. I mean, it, it didn't look it. It didn't feel cheap, but it also didn't feel overproduced. Um, but they also they got really, really, really good directors. I think part of the issue is that, like, um, I mean, you know, there's a pop, most popular shows and, and biggest like cable shows of like all time. You know, you have Breaking Bad, fantastic writing, fan, um, you know, Game of Thrones, which were arguably fantastic writing for a solid period of time based on source material. You know, Walking Dead for a period of time, 
did really well and then just kind of fell apart for all those reasons. It's um, this was just so like everything was very expensive, looks expensive, but it didn't feel like it didn't feel gaudy and it didn't feel green screened and it just felt like it was executed well. And I remember I texted you that the MVP, like, you know, John Favreau has done John Favreau brought us, made Iron Man a big deal and brought us Mandalorian and did, and did great work with this. But like the real hero, I think from the Mandalorian season, Peyton Reed directed the, uh, I don't know if the second or third episode and directed that last episode. He also did Ant-Man and the Wasp and he did those movies. And he is a, he is a real good director and he just kind of put together a vision really well that they picked really good directors for all of these things. Like Bryce Dallas Howard directs an episode. And these are all folks that called shots and directed a story that didn't rely on, it didn't rely on the production to be distracting. And so that's why I think things worked out really well. Yeah. I mean, for me, that, that last scene, um, and you know, so good. Yeah, when they revealed Luke, I, I was right there with you. I echo your sentiments. I got emotional. And, you know, I was watching it in our master bedroom. And my wife actually was facing me on the, on the, on the, on the, on the chair because she didn't want, she hasn't seen it yet. So she didn't want to spoil it. Um, but she didn't want me to wait. So she, like, she allowed me to watch it. And I told her, I'm like, I don't understand, but I'm like really emotional at this point. And it's a, you know, super happy, super like, um, rewarding scene. And I'm not saying it wasn't, but I think like the 30 year connection we have with Luke, um, this, this connection, like it only, it's only what 16 episodes, but this connection we have with the Mandalorian, um, Grogu or Baby Yoda, whatever you want to call him. Like, I think the fact that all three of those worlds collided in those final two minutes, it, it was like too much to handle, you know? Yeah. It was everything we've kind of, like you said, it's everything that we've kind of waited for for 30, 35 years. And it's just kind of everything kind of came together. And especially with after, you know, you just had these movies that no one really knew what we, the story was that they were trying to tell. And this made those sad, really satisfying. And this gave this gave to me a much a very satisfying closure on, or not even a closure, just an additional exclamation point on what Luke has been up to since since Return of the Jedi. You know. Yeah. Uh, so one one piece of debate that my friends and I have have gone back and forth with the last couple of days is: Do you think that? Um, the Mandalorian is over, or do you think there will be a season three? Should it even be over? Like, what do you think the late the what do you think Disney is going to do? I think Disney knows that people want anthologies. People don't want narratives that don't go anywhere. It was the uh, you and I've talked about this a lot. A lot. It was the biggest problem that Lost had was that Lost didn't know where it was going to go. And you could tell the exact moment where it knew it didn't know where it was going to go. It was, it was season three, uh, right when uh, things kind of when they're like, well, we're going to go to a sideways world. Um, and you know the they know where they're going to go, and I think that the Mandalorian. I think that what you know through Bo Katan and all these other things, you kind of learn that like the Mandalorian isn't the Mandalorian. It's um, it's a creed 
it could be anyone. And um, I would love to know about other things going on in the world. I don't, you know, I think it's fine now to watch additional adventures with, with Jin. Um, but, you know, I think we're definitely going to obviously get a, a little bit of like what Boba Fett's been doing. And I think that's going to give a little bit of fan service. I think that that also only is going to really give you like a limited series. You don't, I don't need to see 18 episodes of, of Boba Fett. Um, but I, I, I would love to see more anthology types of things where it's, um, exploring more of the universe and the galaxy that isn't Luke Skywalker, but is still based on themes of, um, you know, right and wrong and, and justice and, um, family. And I think that these are kind of important ideals that you don't have to just stick within the Skywalker clan to tell. Yeah. Yeah, so after the credits, there was a post. There was a post-credit scene, and it was you know Boba Fett, um, you know, getting on the I guess the throne. Do you think it's going to be a full-fledged you know multi-season show, the Book of Boba Fett, or do you think it's a miniseries where it's maybe six episodes or something? I think it's. I mean, I think it'll be a limited run. Like, I think it's just. I, I think it'll be more of a of an anthology. Uh, maybe it'll find ways to, for him to continue his story in other ways, but uh, let's also be honest, like on the surface, Boba Fett's not really that interesting. Uh, he, I mean, Bo- part of the reason why we loved Boba Fett is because we didn't know anything about him. Um, and that, and he shows up and steals two scenes in his three and a half minutes of screen time in two movies. And he's revered. We don't yeah. know anything about We didn't know anything about him. So, it you know we learned about him in the prequels and really wasn't that interesting. I don't fault them for that, but um, I think that he's probably got some interesting things to to tell. I mean, he got out of a sarlacc pit, um, and uh, I think that from there it's sort of you know keep it simple. Like the, the worst thing that TV shows do nowadays is I, I'm turning around as you're talking. I'm seeing it an ad for WandaVision that's going to be on Disney plus as well, which is also intended to be a limited run. It's just tell a story and know where the story is going. This kind of goes back to the original conversation we had about communications directing and and that stuff. It's stories don't just stories can't stick in mud. Stories have to have a, like a tension and an idea of where they're going, whether they're news or whether they're shows. And the more that people do that and more that I love seeing more TV shows being like, we're only going to do three, uh, three seasons or two seasons. Good. If that's as long as you need to tell your story, then do it. It's, um, and I hope that it's one season of, 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 uh, of Boba Fett and, and we kind of go from there. Oh, awesome, man. I, I love this. I had a great time. We definitely have to record another one soon. Whether yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Whether it's, uh, you know, giving my condolences on another Eagles season for you or um, one game, one game, or one game out of the NFC, you know, two games out of the NFC or one and a half. So are the, I believe. yeah, so are the Cowboys. Um, I know. Really. But maybe we'll be talking, um, you know, we'll be talking about a Philly 76ers championship run or something in a few months. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I what I'm really looking, looking forward to, Looking forward to it, man. Looking forward also to the world opening up. I know that you're, you know, you being um, based in Texas, that is a, it's a huge hub for the stuff that I'm doing for work. And I'm looking forward to the world becoming safer, world becoming more open and, and all of us getting to, to hang out and, and jam. It's going to be fun. 
Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you again, Adam. Um, please, everyone, give us a follow on Six Pennies Pod Twitter. We're also on Facebook, Six Pennies Podcast. If you're subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a review. You can always also find us on, on TuneIn and other places where you find your podcasts. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>